Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Almost Sideways podcast. We are so thrilled to be joining you. Uh, we are recording this on Sunday, November 3rd at about 6 o'clock Pacific Standard Time because Daylight Savings Time just ended and everything is pitch black outside. Uh, I am your host, Terry Plucknett, and as always, joining me are my co-host, Todd Plucknett, and Zach Saltz. Guys, how's it going? Awesome. Fabulous. Good, good, good. Todd, are you celebrating that Seahawks win? Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> definitely. It's definitely better than yesterday when I had to watch uh, Nebraska and Washington lose in consecutive, uh, in consecutive games, but, you know. It makes yeah, up for it a little, little rough. Bit. That was a little rough. Nebraska just finds a way to lose. And, and uh, now I'm and, watching and the Ravens just like kick the ass of the Patriots. That's always nice to see. Yeah. Zach, Zach, how's how's Kansas? I hear you're recording from your new house. I, I am recording from a new house, but. Hey Terry, uh, hey hey, who who predicted that the Nationals would win uh, the World Series in seven games? Did did you predict that? Uh, yeah, I, I believe I texted you that in case uh, we need verifiable proof. But yeah, I'm doing great. I have a new house. I, I am one for one in my sports predictions for the 2019 World Series. And I just read that uh, Willie Tiger was fired by Florida State, which just makes my day. I mean, that just is wonderful news. I mean, I, yeah. I, I want him to stay on longer to see just how bad it, it could get. But, uh, hey, you know what? The hammer had to come at some point, and uh, I'm just thrilled. It's a wonderful day. Yeah. I think the best thing you could say that came from Willie Taggart over the last three years is bringing Mario Cristobal to Oregon. Like, like if he hadn't been there, Cristobal wouldn't have been there, and Cristobal is definitely, like, the best coach out of the last three that they've had. So do you think, like, so. yeah, him... Uh, him leaving Kendall Bryles at uh, Florida State is, would be the equivalent of that or something? Yeah, I, I mean, maybe. I don't know. He didn't even know. get the interim tag, though. But, I mean... Yeah, I, I like how I like how Taggart tried to upgrade in, in just a little over a year. I mean, think about that. Think about that. He got, what, 20 games? And, and he was fired. And Florida State has to pay, has to buy him out too. Oregon didn't like have to buy out anything. Fifteen million dollars. Yeah, Florida State paid for all of Oregon's cash owed to him. It was it's wonderful. You could not ask for anything better. Except I will miss those times when Florida State loses to like Duke. You know, it's just it, those were wonderful experiences <laughs> the last year and a half. I can't tell you as a Duck fan how wonderful that made me feel. It was almost better than seeing the Ducks win. Yep. All right. All right. Well, uh, let's uh, let's get into this. Uh, Zach, what are you drinking? In honor of our aquatic uh, themed uh, movie that we'll be reviewing today, at least one of them, I am drinking a wine called Dreamfish, which was on sale at the cheap liquor store down the street uh, for eight dollars. And it's fabulous. It smells like uh, pine tar and uh, it tastes like the back of an L.A. city school bus. Yes. Well done, well done. 
Todd, what are you drinking? Uh, I am drinking some limited edition uh, white grape Ciroc, and it's got this cool fancy bottle. And uh, Ooh, looks like shampoo. It's really, yeah, kind of. <laughs> uh, I'm not a vodka drinker, but this actually tastes really good. It tastes like a like a sort of a white grape like spritzer kind of thing. Not not overly like hairspray ish like most vodkas are. Very nice, very nice. So I'm drinking out of Hop Valley Brewing in uh, in Zach's hometown of Eugene, Oregon. Uh, I was also going for something that was a little bit kind of themed in, in honor of what we're going to be reviewing. So this is the Light Me Up Lager. So What does that have to do with anything that we're reviewing? Lighthouse, maybe. Lighthouse, oh. light. Got it. Dude, come on. <laughs> this is brilliant. Just brilliant. Already yeah. off to a great start. Great start, great start. All right, well, uh, as always, thank you so much for listening. Uh, find us on iTunes. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review so we can be found by more people. Uh, find us on our Facebook page, almostsideways.com. Uh, you can find us at almostsideways.com and find all of our reviews there and all of our ratings and everything like that. Uh, you can find Zach and I on Twitter. Our handles are in the notes to this episode. But uh, let's get into this uh, and start with our movie review. We have an episode today where we're going to be reviewing a new release, and then we're going to be doing a deep dive into a classic. And we're starting with uh, um, our uh, movie review of something that was just recently released wide. It's been out for a little while. And that is The Lighthouse. Uh, and let's see here. Uh, Zach, I'm going to go to you first. Oh, God. Tell us uh, about The Lighthouse. All right. The Lighthouse. Wow. Okay. So this is the latest film uh, by Robert Eggers, who is probably best known for his uh, 2015 film, The Witch, which uh, I drunkenly called on a uh, Red and Brown podcast, one of the five best movies of the decade. I don't know if I would really go with that still, but I still think it's a really good movie. Um, so The Lighthouse is uh, like The Witch in the sense that it is a historical horror film. Um, it is set uh, on a remote island, presumably off the coast of New England, somewhere in the late 19th century. And the film stars Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson, and they're really the only two characters in the movie. And they, their job is to live on this lighthouse. Uh, well, at least uh, Willem Dafoe lives on the lighthouse. Uh, Robert Pattinson joins him for like a four-week sort of trial run. And they operate this lighthouse together um, in the midst of nor'easters and big storms. And they're very isolated. And, you know, I think if we are to identify a theme in Robert Eggers's uh, burgeoning filmography, it is that isolation from the world leads to really bad consequences. And so these two guys uh, really um, get on each other's nerves to a, a, a large extent. Uh, Willem Dafoe, he's doing his best impression of the sea captain from The Simpsons. Or, you know, actually kind of what I thought of was the character in Being John Malkovich when they show that instructional video about the the making of the seven and a half floor and they show that sea captain saying, I'll make a, I'll make a seven and a half floor for ye. That's a really obscure reference, but someone out there got it. Um, 
Anyway, he talks like a pirate for most of the movie, and, you know, uh, some of this movie does feel very much like an SNL sketch. Like, it's such an outrageous concept of these two guys just kind of sitting there in the midst of this huge storm, uh, really driving each other nuts, and then gradually, as the movie goes more and more along, really the movie is about intoxication as well, because gradually the Robert Pattinson character starts drinking more and more, and as the alcohol consumption becomes greater, so do the hallucinations and the kind of strange, twisted, f***ed up fantasies that they start having, which involve uh, mermaids, seagulls, octopuses, uh, what else? Um, just just some generalized crazy stuff. Um, and then, uh, you know, the movie has a really interesting look. It's shot in this sort of like 119 to 1 aspect ratio that looks like an old movie from the 1920s or 30s. I don't know, you know, it recalls a lot of film directors. I mean, this is very much a sort of self-conscious cinematic film. It, to me, it recalled the work of Germain Duloc, the French expressionist avant-garde filmmaker from the 20s, but it also recalled to some degree the work of Bellatar with his long takes in the black and white, and then by the end, Piero pa- uh, Pier Paolo Pasolini, um, and some others too. Um, I think Eggers is crazy talented. Uh, he and his brother wrote the screenplay, and actually that's one of the things that kind of gets lost in this. There, there's some incredible dialogue in this movie, some incredible twisting of vulgarities in this movie and I have to say there is some great flatulence humor anytime you can get some flatulence humor in, in a movie like this uh, it just is is awesome so um, I like the movie I don't like horror movies that rely too much on dreamscaping like this movie most of the horror sequences you don't really know if they're dream- they're fake or, 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 re- or real um, I think that's sort of a, 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 a cop out to some extent but I love the look of it I think the performances are really gritty some good dialogue This is a solid three-star film that maybe I'll come back to and give it a higher rating. But for right now, uh, and I also didn't, I also didn't love uh, Robert Pattinson's kind of going in and out of the British uh, American accent. I don't know. I think he's a better actor than that, but it it, it felt inconsistent with the character. So again, a solid three stars, enjoyable film. Some people will hate it. It might have a a sort of um, uh, very polarized reaction because my wife hated it, but I liked it. And Robert Eggers is really talented. All right, all right. Todd, are you on the same wavelength as uh, Zach or his wife? Uh, yeah, I'm way more on his wife's side on this one. Uh, Whoa! I, I, okay. there, I do like, uh, I do like uh, The Witch a lot. That's a good movie. I really don't think this one is at all. Like, I mean, there are a lot of like really strange turns and dark twists that it has, and like the hallucinatory dream sequences and stuff. It's, it's all interesting in theory, but in the end, it's just. It seems like a movie that's just, like, stroking itself to its, like, Hitchcockian black-and-white set pieces and, you know, like, uh, the beautiful cinematography. Like, that. that's really good and the dread-inducing score. But it, it just seems like it was meant to be made in the 1940s by Hitchcock starring, like, Charles Lawton, which would make it, like, Jamaica Inn, which is, like, one of his worst movies, which is actually a really similar movie to this. And, I don't know, it, I, I, I think I like the claustrophobic feeling that, that Ever- Eggers... Uh, has uh, established with with his with his movies, but I don't know. I don't think it. I think it's kind of a drag to sit through, honestly. Like I mean, that yeah, they they get super drunk and they they their their bond is like shifting and whatever. But I don't know. In the end, I think there are just too many farts. I, I, there really are too many farts. It's like it's a there's no such it's, thing. It's a it's a one and a Not half possible. star movie. Oh, ouch. Oof. All right, so I gotta say, um, 
when uh, when I went and watched this and I, I got home, uh, my wife asked me, uh, what did you think of it? And I said, well, this is going to be a movie that one of them is going to love, one of them is going to hate, and I'm going to be somewhere in the middle. I just don't know which one's which. Um, and that's exactly what ended up happening. So... <clears throat> I'm like right on that two and a half to three star. I'm probably leaning towards a three star rating for this one. Um, I loved, I, I I loved the, the just the the way it was made. Like like Zach was saying, I noticed the aspect ratio right away, and it just kind of felt like it it just boxed it in. Um, and and some of the the visuals in it are are just stunning. Um, I thought the performances were actually really really good from from Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson. And and like Zach, like you said, the dialogue is is very uh, is very interesting, and um, just hearing their conversations. I mean, you could sit and listen to that forever. Um, there wasn't enough. I mean, I know it's supposed to be like mind bending and not quite sure what's going on, but they needed to let you know a little more what was going on, because <laughs> I didn't when when it was giving these twists and turns, I didn't care enough about the twists and turns because it didn't set them up well enough with enough story um like in the first like 20 minutes of the movie they're it, they're through their four weeks or are they on the second day it doesn't really it, like it's it's one where you gotta decide what's true what you hear or what you see and it never gives any hints um to which one's the right one and doesn't give you enough outside of that to care but um with all of that said like i said the performances are amazing the the dialogue is great the scenes between the two of them are are awesome i love the filmmaking so that puts it just right on that border for me and like i said i'm probably leaning towards a three star but i'm right on that two and a half to three star range wow Okay, I, I'm I, I'm kind of shocked about Todd's of uh, the one and a half star. I mean, that's just brutal. Like, I can understand like not really a, a admiring like the the story, and maybe you know maybe it is indulgent to a certain extent, and maybe it, it's it's derivative in in some respects. But kind of like what Terry was saying, like these are really solid performances. There's great dialogue. I mean, Willem Dafoe is like awesome in this movie. I mean, this this continues a string of awesome performances from this decade that he's given. Like, I feel like this is an Oscar worthy at least nomination for supporting actor like what what what's missing from this movie man well i mean yeah you could have a great supporting actor performance and great cinematography and still be a shitty movie and that's what this is like i mean there's a lot of uh, it's not every movie nominated for oscars for acting are good movies i mean i don't know i and like i yeah i mean i i'm i'm uh, more on terry's uh, side with like uh, th there isn't enough story for you to actually care about what happens to these characters I mean the performances are great and they're compelling but like you, you don't necessarily care in the end what what happens to either of them like the end is supposed to be shocking and and really disturbing but it really was just like oh okay it was kind of hard to follow the story like I and again maybe this goes back to to, to Pattinson who I, I don't think was that great in this movie but like like his monologue he he he, he explains something about his character and then the next scene Willem Dafoe's talking about how he spilled the beans and it's like wait what did he say I'm not really sure I, I wasn't fully sure like what what was happening in the story and you're right Todd I, I would agree like the characters aren't particularly well developed and we don't really care that much about them 
But I don't know from a few, like I, I, I like the audacity of this movie. I mean, this is a movie that clearly has no interest in being commercially viable at all. Like it's totally recalling like this kind of artsy, independent, almost like Guy Madden vibe at times. And I don't know in this era of the MCU movies dominating and, you know, we're going to give the Oscar to uh, Black Panther, you know, like why not have a movie that's just totally, totally uh, esoteric and avant-garde like that? I mean, I, 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 I like the audacity of Robert Eggers to, to make this movie. Even if the execution yeah, to, wasn't perfect, to have a movie like this released this wide is is quite gutsy by the studio because, like you said, it is it is the opposite of anything commercial, <laughs> and and for that you got to give it you got to give it some props. But I mean, it it went a little a little too far for me to love it, but I'm definitely in a at a point where I would give it a second shot. That's kind of that's kind of where why why I'm going where I'm where I'm going with it is is it's worth a it's worth a repeat viewing but maybe uh, but for right now it's kind of a it's on the on the edge there. I don't know. I mean, I would put it kind of in the same category as I would put like a movie like A Single Man or something like that, where it's like it's really beautiful to look at and it's really it's got really good performances, at least two really good performances, but other than that, like, it, it is kind of shallow, and you either really like it or you really don't, and I feel like that one I really like, this one I really don't. I don't know. It, but, Todd, it, did you like the lobster? Yeah. Tell me you like the lobster! <laughs> that, that was the most heartbreaking part of the movie, when... <laughs> You know, it was revealed that he wasn't a fan of his cooking. I, I think that's what really drove him over that's the edge. <laughs> I, don't know, I was with that like part in the middle where it was like this, like uh, making it seem like there were like uh, almost like a homosexual vibes between them for like a moment, and then they just like got away from that like real quick. Like that would have been an interesting dynamic too, because it was totally like a broke back kind of feeling of these two guys that are isolated in this in this situation working they're the only people they ever see and then i don't know and and like they had that moment and then it was gone and i was like well that would have been interesting theme but then it got it went away from it i don't know yeah that's the only thing that was missing out of this movie was more blatant uh homosexual overtones (laughs) it needed it well it would have been an overtone to have <laughs> some it would have been some story. <laughs> the, All right. Well, uh, oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say, is this the real question? Is is this Willem Dafoe's best maritime performance, or is it is his best maritime performance still Speed Two Cruise Control? That's the real question. Although I don't think either of you have seen Speed Two Cruise Control, but I, that, that's that's an internal debate that rages in my mind. I mean that 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 is the the uh, the thought that's on everyone's minds, you know. Yeah. How does this compare to Speed Two? Exactly. It, it's it's a it's it's tough. It's tough. You know, in Speed Two, he has the leeches on his body, and uh, in this movie, he has the octopus on his body. Apparently, uh, so you know, one or the other. Uh, all right. Well. Uh, as you can tell, the lighthouse is not your typical. We could do like the top five mainstream per- performances movie. of Willem Dafoe, where he's just like completely chewing up every every bit of dialogue. Like, but that would be every movie he's ever been in. It's true. It's true. <laughs> I mean, right? I know. Yeah, yeah. Like you got Shadow of the except, Vampire. You got Wild like, at Heart. I mean, like the, he, he's the, got uh, some ones where he is like really Antichrist. 
Well, and if you want to oh, go full yeah. mainstream, yeah. Spider-Man is oh, yeah, yeah right there course. too. Yeah. Um. And but, however, his more recent stuff, like Florida Project, he, that's like the opposite of what he's doing. So, but he, it's, it's definitely what he's best at is just owning every scene he's in. Anyways, The Lighthouse, uh, like I said, it's not your typical movie. If um, what we're saying sounds interesting to you, check it out. If not, <laughs> yeah, you're probably not yeah, going to like it. I don't think there's a lot of people so, out there. <laughs> yeah, I, would, yeah. I would dare say. It it is a different uh, it is a different movie, but um, but yeah, like I said, if if the if what we're saying is something that sounds interesting, check it out. If not, you don't because you're not you're not gonna like it. So Zach well, I and I have it at three stars. Todd has it at one and a half. Um, it's just it's just cold. Yeah, that's brutal, man. The, I, and that, that's where I, the filmmaking is at least worth more than one and a half. So. Yeah. I mean, you know, who cares about the story? Like, the filmmaking is amazing in that movie. And how about those farts? I mean, they're fantastic. This is this is me saying, the filmmaking is worth putting it above the story. I mean, that's that is saying something because I'm always the one that is like, if it doesn't have a story, what's the point? Like, so, so there, that, that's what I'm going with. Anyways, uh, let's move on. Um, <clears throat> So we've looked at the lighthouse. Now we're going to move on to our deep dive for uh, for this podcast. And it's been a little while since we've done a deep dive, but this one is probably the most classic of a film that we've done as a deep dive. It's definitely the furthest back we've gone, uh, and that is uh, 1976's Taxi Driver. Well, who the hell else are you talking? Talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. I don't believe I've ever met anyone quite like you. Oh, yeah? You will never see a more chilling performance than this. Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver. Uh, We thought this was a perfect movie to deep dive at this time because um, it's a Scorsese film and we're getting prepared to see his latest film, uh, be released. I think it's had some limited releases this weekend. Uh, by the end of the month, it'll be on Netflix, so everyone can see it, and that's The Irishman. Uh, also, Taxi Driver has been mentioned a lot recently as a comparison to Joker, and how Travis Bickle is very similar to uh, to Joaquin Phoenix's character in that movie. So, we thought this was kind of perfectly placed right in between the releases of those two films. Uh, Todd and I were just talking before this podcast came out. Joker is still number two at the box office in its fifth week, uh, which is just insane. So, um, so we're gonna be talking about uh, Taxi Driver. Uh, maybe we'll talk a little bit about how how Travis Bickle kind of is is the Joker in some ways. Uh, we'll kind of see how it goes. But before we get too deep into talking about it, we have some trivia to do. So I am hosting trivia. We decided I I would host trivia for a second straight time simply because Todd and Zach know this movie much more than I do. And so I would t- test their knowledge of Taxi Driver. So uh, let's see here. Who wants to go first? That goes. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, Todd, why don't you go first? Okay. All right. So Zach's going to unplug. He's not going to listen to what's going on. And uh, and we'll uh, we'll go from there. Okay, Todd, 
We have 11 questions on Taxi Driver. Okay. And I believe there are 13 points possible. So, let's see how you do. Um, I think you should be able to do pretty well at this. So, first question, how old is Travis Bickle at the start of the movie? 26. That is correct. Uh, next question, this one, uh, let's hear. So, what is the name of the theater that Travis frequents? And for a bonus point, uh, do you know the name of the store that's right next door? Uh, the French Quarters. The French Quarters is next door, so I'll give you that. I don't know what the theater is called, but I thought that was show and tell. Show and tell. Okay. Uh, next question: On what corner is Palantine headquarters? I have no idea. Like, say like, like first in, uh, like Brooklyn or something. That's that's very very wrong. He, he says it, he's, I first saw her at Palantine headquarters on the corner of 63rd and Broadway. Okay. So, uh, next question. Uh, this one's going to be worth two points. What is Palantine's campaign slogan and what word is underlined? Uh, we are the people. Right. It's we are the people. Right. Not we are the people. We are not paying for them. <laughs> we are throwing them away. Uh, next question, uh, promoting a politician is like selling what? According to Albert Brooks. Uh, stocks. Mouthwash. Mouthwash, that's right. Uh, next question, where's Travis and Betsy's first date? Uh, they went to, like, a, a diner. Do you kind. know the name of it? No. Okay. It's Child's Coffee Shop. Uh, uh, next question. What movie does Travis take Betsy to? It was, um... It's, like, Sometime Sweet Susan or something? Yes, but, Sometime Sweet Susan is correct. Alright, next question... Uh, what gun is the man in the cab going to use to kill his wife? Uh, it was, it was like a handgun, right? It was like a magnum, a forty-four magnum. Mm, give, be more specific. There we go, forty-four magnum. Uh, next question. Uh, Travis tells the Secret Service agent that his name is what? I don't remember what he said his name was. Henry Crinkle. Henry Crinkle. Henry Crinkle. Uh, next question. What is Iris's zodiac sign? Cancer? No, you gotta watch out for the cancers. She's a Libra. That's why her and um, Harvey Keitel get along so well. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mixed those up. And the last question, yeah, last question, uh, how many times does Travis pull the trigger at the brothel? Um, 
And yes, I counted them. So he... It's like, would be 14? No, that's incorrect. He pulled the trigger 22 times. Okay. He unloaded an entire clip on one guy, and then he fired like seven blanks. So that was the majority of them. All right. All right. So, uh, I've got 11 questions here, uh, worth a total of 13 points. Do you want to know how Todd did, or do you want to just go for it? Uh, I'll just go for it. I'm, All right. I'm, I'm assuming Todd did pretty well. Uh, not as well as you'd think. Okay. All right, first question. How old is Travis Bickle at the start of the movie? 26. That is correct. Uh, what is the name of the theater that Travis frequents, and a bonus uh, if you know the name of the place next door? The theater he frequents. You mean the adult theater? Yes. The Lyric? No. That's the name of the theater that he takes Betsy to. That's not the same theater. Oh, okay. I should get half. Okay, what was the, what was the other question? Uh, what is the name of the store, the place next door? No clue. Okay. So, uh, at least the theater he frequents at the beginning is Show and Tell. Ah. And the place next door is uh, French Quarters. Yep. I don't even know what you're talking about. Okay. Another language. Ne next question. On what corner is Palantine headquarters? <laughs> what? Uh, <laughs> I know. Uh, I mean, he goes by Columbus Circle. He talks about that. That's like near Palantine, but I, I, I have no clue. The first time I saw her was at Palantine headquarters on the corner of 63rd and Broadway. Okay. Todd didn't get that one, did he? No, he didn't. That's he a said, That's a ridiculous right. question. Yeah. In fact, yeah, Todd, Todd's, an Todd's answer was first in Brooklyn. <laughs> Brooklyn is a borough, not a street, Todd. Well, I know that. I'm just, I mean, I had the first three <laughs> letters right of the, the street. Terry's right? going, like, all intense. Like, remember the last one on, Bo on Boiler Room? He said, what, what, did, uh, what did the dad, what the guy's dad do for a living? It's yeah. like, that's the most, <laughs> now he's, like, compensating for that with these ridiculous questions. I, okay. I, it must be. It must be. Okay. <laughs> Next question. I think this one's a little easier. Next question. What is Palantine's campaign slogan and what word is underlined? We are the people. Yes. Not we are. We are not buying these buttons. Exactly. Okay. Those, those were two points, by the way. You got, you got both of them. Next question. According to Albert Brooks, promoting a politician is like selling what? Mouthwash. Yes. Um, where is Travis and Betsy's first date? Well, at the at the at the theater. No. Oh. 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 oh it's at the it's at the at the cafe. I guess that's too late. Yeah. Child's yeah. coffee shop. Yeah. I okay, should get fine. at least a half point for getting that right in the first. But I, I said it's on Columbus Circle. Yeah. Next question: yeah. What movie does Travis take Betsy to? That's a good question. Um, because it's the there are two movies that are playing on the billboard and I wanted to talk about these movies on the podcast. So I actually took note of them. It is Swedish marriage manual, which I believe is the movie they're seeing, but also sometimes uh, sweet Susan is also playing. Okay. I wrote down sometimes sweet Susan. I don't know. But it's Swedish. The, the movie they're seeing is in Swedish. So it has to be Swedish. Well, we'll talk about this in the podcast. Okay. I'll give you the point. I'll give you the point. Cause you knew more about that than I did. And I wrote the question. Okay. 
Uh, next question. What gun is the man in the cab going to use to kill his wife? 44 Magnum. That is correct. You mean, you mean Marty? Yes. Uh, next question. Travis tells a Secret Service agent his name is what? Henry Crinkle with a K. That is correct. Crinkle with a K. He's from Fairlow, New Jersey. With, mm-hmm. with a and place with six uh, digits six in the digit zip, zip, zip code. code. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. What is Iris's zodiac sign? <sighs> Good. Uh, well, it's the same as sport. That's why they get along. Libra. It is. Sweet. But cancers make the best lovers. That Yeah, there you go. And the last one, this one, this one's a pretty tough one. Uh, how many times does Travis pull the trigger at the brothel? Oh, <laughs> did you like have to rewind this scene and watch it? A um, couple times, yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, 12. 22. I was Darn. closer. I should get a point. Todd, Todd was closer. I will give him the point. All right. Simply because it doesn't matter because Zach won eight to seven. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So he unloads like an entire round into the one guy, and then at the end he fires he fires a uh, seven blanks after the guns are out. So first to try and shoot the other guy, and then to try and shoot himself. Yes. And Anyways, I, I believe that that uh, took place on the corner of First and Brooklyn. That scene. Yeah. For, yeah. First, first in Brooklyn. Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, so Zach wins our trivia game. Uh, you see, and... I, I dominate at these at these deep dive trivia's. The Oscar trivia's Todd kicks my ass at all the time. This is true. This but is true. If, if only these were actually worth something meaningful, they're worth nothing. But you know. Well, I guess that... you could make Todd watch something, but you're already making him watch something for the next podcast. That's true. As it is. That's true. So, uh, so Zach, since you won, you get to tell us what Taxi Driver is all about and what's your experience with the movie. Okay, well, well, you know, all these, all these kids out there are watching Joker right now, and, you know, they think Joker is so original and so creative and whatever. Well, literally, like, almost every scene in Joker is taken from Taxi Driver, okay? And that's not to say that it's, it's a bad movie. We reviewed Joker on the last podcast. And I believe it was thrice approved. And but 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 you know, part of the reason why we weren't maybe more enthusiastic about it is that it it borrows so heavily from both Taxi Driver and The King of Comedy, but in not a way that is uh, entirely annoying, um, but you know, in a way that that shows love and, and respect for for its cinematic derivation. But Taxi Driver is uh, the 1976 movie by Martin Scorsese, uh, really kind of launched Scorsese's career more into the mainstream. By that point, he had made. House doesn't live here anymore in Mean Streets and a few other films, but uh, really, Taxi Driver is the first film that 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 really put uh, Marty on the map, so to speak. Um, it was you know De Niro coming off of his Oscar win for The Godfather Part Two, uh, you know uh, uh, you know thirteen year old Jodie Foster, uh, Harvey Keitel, Sybil Shepherd, just an incredible cast, and it, it tells the story of Travis Bickle, who is twenty six years old as we just learned, and uh, a Vietnam vet who works as a taxi driver in uh in new york city in the 70s and uh you know the movie kind of shows his downward spiral into insanity not too unlike the joker obviously in in joker um i've seen this movie countless times uh i've loved this movie for a long time i have campaigned and lobbied hard for this movie to be a deep dive so i'm excited for today's episode because i think it's a very interesting rewatch in 2019 not even not sort of irregardless of joker i think it's just a movie that um you know five years ago i don't think i would have said this movie has aged 
very well. I think there are parts of it that maybe look kind of dated uh, today. But I think in the world we're living in, t- in 2019, as opposed to 2014, uh, the movie actually has aged very well. And I think it has a lot to say about the kind of social, racial, political context that we're living in. Uh, and uh, it's just an awesome movie that I've, al- I've always loved. And uh, it's, it's, it still may be Martin Scorsese's and, and Robert De Niro's best film of their many collaborations as we eagerly anticipate the Irishman coming to theaters and Netflix in the next few weeks. All right. Todd, how about, how about you? What, what are your thoughts on, on taxi driver in general? Uh, yeah, I, I watched it for the first time, I think in high school. And then I remember, uh, actually had to watch it again. And Terry and my favorite, uh, TCC Tacoma community college teachers class, Dr. Duchin's, American history, American film class representing the uh, 20th century uh, era of post-Vietnam. This is the movie we watched that was like our thing for that era of history. It was like our text for it, which was awesome. And we did our own little like deep diving class for it, which was always cool. But yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the best movies ever made. It's one of Scorsese's five best movies. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what else to say about it other than, yeah, I mean, it's it's a masterpiece and it's irreplaceable. So you say it's one of the best movies ever made, but it's only a top five Scorsese film? Oh, well, yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, I was just making sure I heard that right. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I probably watched this for the first time around the same time as Todd. This was kind of in that era when we were catching up on a lot of classics that we had hadn't seen yet when we were in our late teens, early 20s. Um, honestly, this is one of those movies that, when I first watched it, uh, was one that... I, I, gave, I gave it four stars kind of as one of those... This is a movie you, you give four stars to. You, you, because it's, it's one of those movies that you just love. But honestly, I didn't quite get it the first time I watched it. And, and I'm still... It's still one of those... I mean, I, I understand why it's such a it's such a revered movie however it's not it's one that i look at now and still even rewatching it this week i was like i mean what yes it's a great movie but i don't understand the masterpiece level necessarily that everyone takes it to i don't know it, it just doesn't I, I i don't quite get it as as much as i probably should but um but we'll, we'll maybe you guys will convince me as we talk about it uh, to think otherwise of it, but uh, but it is a very good good movie. De Niro is insane in it, but um, to say it's like one of the greatest ever made and the masterpiece that you guys are saying, I don't know. Okay. Hot take. Yeah, yeah. So would you give it one and a half stars, like Todd gave? Um, well, well um, obviously, was? obviously, I would. <laughs> <laughs> Like I said, I, I have it currently. It's at four stars, but honestly, when I rated it, it was one of those that it's like, okay, this is four this stars is a movie out of respect. It's four it's out of, respect, out of respect. Exactly. I love exactly. those movies. That's yeah. like every movie made before 1950. You know, four stars out of respect. <laughs> I don't really love it, but hey, you know, someone someone back in the day did. So so when talking about a movie like this, uh, usually where we've started. Um, in a critically acclaimed Oscar-nominated film like this is we look at the Oscars of that year and kind of reassess them a little bit. So I thought, let, let's start there with this one. So we're looking at 1976. Uh, Taxi Driver was nominated 
in a few different places. It was nominated uh, for Best Picture. Uh, it had a nomination for Robert De Niro for Best Actor, Jodie Foster for Supporting Actress, and Bernard Herrmann's uh, original score. Uh, he was actually nominated posthumously for this. Uh, so, uh, looking at that, and uh, in, in looking at it now, did it deserve more? Did it deserve to win something? Uh, if, if this were to be voted on now, would the voting have gone differently? What do you guys think? Well, I think that it's absurd that the movie was not nominated for cinematography, editing, original screenplay, screenplay and best director because i think all four are like top 10 achievements of all time in the in those uh, respective categories and somehow those got overlooked in favor of the score which is i mean it's a great score but i mean i don't know i i, I can't imagine what what would have made people think it was one of the best pictures of the year without recognizing the director and the editing and especially the camera work <laughs> I, I think it's safe to say for me the score is actually somewhat distracting because it has such the such a wrong tone at so many different times from what it should have. Well, I mean that's I the, that that dread-inducing score that that we saw in Joker too. I mean that like a, that really heavy string score. I mean I don't. I, but most of the score in this is is what the the saxophone. Softly playing. Well, it's like the opening credits and stuff, but I mean, that's not and, the whole score. And most of the movie! Anyways, we're getting off topic. Zach, what do you think? Well, I want to read some of the films that were nominated in these categories other than Taxi Driver. For cinematography, uh, King Kong was nominated, and A Star is Born was nominated. Not the Lady Gaga, A Star is Born, but the... The, the Barbara Streisand star is born. Okay, we're not talking about the cinematography from that movie anymore. Um, for Best Director, we had such memorable uh, as, as Ingmar Bergman face to face because everyone talks about that as his greatest movie, right? And, uh, and, and uh, interestingly enough, 1976 was the first time a woman got nominated for Best Director. Lena Wertmuller for si Seven Beauties. And Lena Wertmuller, of course, made news. She's now getting uh, commemorated by the Oscars. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, over, over Martin Scorsese, I mean that's just that, that's nuts, and then and then the most egregious of all I think is the screenplay, which is you know Paul Schrader's uh, masterwork, and the films that got nominated that year, Network won, and of course you know Network's still a really good movie, but Cousin Cousine, which the Academy was fascinated by in 1976, this French film that was later made into a Ted Danson film, and The Front, I mean give me uh, give me a break, These, the, the, this is the, the 1976 Oscars is terribly dated, and I realize that you know it's a, a lot of people compare it to the 1939 Oscars. Oscars is one of the best Oscars ever, but uh, but really, the Taxi Driver is terribly shortchanged throughout this Oscars, and obviously it didn't win a whole lot of awards, and uh, the best original score that year, not Taxi Driver, The Omen by Jerry Goldsmith. Again, no one's talking about The Omen, okay? No one's talking about Jerry Goldsmith. The Bernard Horman score is legendary to Taxi Driver, and you know what, say what you will about it, Terry, I think it's one of the best things about the movie. Yeah, I, I mean, I, it definitely deserved more than it got. Uh, Scorsese definitely deserved to get in there for, for director. Uh, yes, you could argue the, the screenplay should have gotten in. However, Network still should have won Best Screenplay. Um, the and... only movie brat they liked in the 70s was Francis Ford Coppola. If your name wasn't Francis Ford Coppola and you were under the age of 40, you were not going to win any Oscars. 
That's just the way it was. They they hated the younger directors in the seventies, and that yeah, is something Spielberg that really got stuff for Jaws, right? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, they hated George Lucas. They hated they hated everyone. The only one that got away with it was Francis Ford Coppola. And he didn't even win for The Godfather. He only won for The Godfather Part Two. So they they were really out of touch in the nineteen seventies. But both Godfather and Godfather Part Two both got Best Picture, and even Star Wars got a Best Picture nomination. That is well. Well, so did Taxi Driver. That's in true. all fairness. That's true. Um. So let's look at Best Picture. You've got you've got Rocky, All the President's Men, Bound for Glory, Network, and Taxi Driver. Um, what should have won, and if the voting were to happen today, what would win? Uh, well, Taxi Driver should have won. I mean, it's it's the best film of those of those five. I think it's held yeah, up the best. I agree. However, I think to, for today's voters, they might say All the President's Men. Just be just as a sort of gimmick, a little bit. I, I, taxi, I honestly tri- think taxi Rocky might still win, but I mean, yeah, but yeah, I was thinking that too. Rocky the, the might Academy still loves win. Rocky, but yeah. Well, and it's the feel-good movie. They they it always is. tend to go for the feel-good movie over the the more powerful movie. Except when um, not recently, or at least I, I, would I, mean, say, I guess what, this last year, but like Spotlight and. Uh, moonlight and Spotlight stuff. Spotlight and like. Moonlight are different, yeah. Um, I would say what should have won was Network. I, I'm a huge Network fan. Um, I, I think Zach was surprised, actually, not too long ago. Uh, someone on Twitter asked for, like, top ten movies of all time. And I put my list together, and Network made my top ten of all time. Uh, it was a movie that was so, so, so far ahead of its time... And honestly, I think if the voting were to happen, that it would have a very good shot of winning today. Simply, for, or for the same reasons that all the president's men would have a decent shot, because it is very timely. It has aged extremely well, and it still speaks to our times today, uh, in very much so in the themes that it portrays. I guess, but but I don't know. I don't get why Network got all that love for the acting awards, and why why ta- how is Taxi Driver that much inferior? I mean. You know, Beatrice Strait was on scene for five minutes in that movie, and she's really good in it. But Jodie Foster, and to a lesser extent, Sybil Shepherd, are iconic in in Taxi Driver. Irreplaceable. Yeah, I I have no idea how Beatrice Strait won. I'll agree with you there. Um, Peter Finch winning over over De Niro. And you could even say over Stallone was is interesting. I get it, but yeah, questionable. He's a low key supporting actor in that movie too. Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, look, those are those are all really good movies. I mean, really, the '76 Oscars were loaded. I mean, they're, 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 even even like Seven Beauties is a really good movie. So I don't I don't really hold the Academy accountable for it. It's not like egregious, like you know, Citizen Kane losing or something like that. But it's just you know, I I think today people would recognize. I mean, Scorsese out of all those directors is certainly probably the, the most renowned. I mean, certainly had a more legendary career than John G. Aldinson, you know, or even Alan. Pat- to a certain extent i mean so so if we're just basing it purely on directors direct the power of the of, of the of the auteur scorsese dominates it i mean sydney lumet obviously had a pretty legendary history too but yeah you know. well yeah if you're going to judge it by by who was more legendary in their careers moving forward then yeah scorsese needed to be in there but i mean yeah okay so I think we, we were kind of in agreement that Taxi Driver definitely was sold short at the Oscars. 
uh, in 76, even with as great of a year as 76 was at the Oscars. Well, it's just strange um, that it could be in the shortlisted for Best Picture, but not have its best attributes be recognized. Like, that's the main thing that is just weird to me. Yeah, especially, I mean, back then when you only had five get in, and it gets into those five, yet it's only nominated for four Oscars, it's two like, acting, and the score yeah, the picture. Yeah, yeah, because the movie, yeah, because as if that those are the reasons why, like... It's like you're nominated for Best Picture, and then like your other nominations are the reasons why you're nominated for Best Picture, essentially. And like if it's just the acting and the music, then I don't know how it it equates to being Best Picture. But I don't know. Well, and this is also one year removed from the Academy giving Best Picture to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which in many ways is equally like, you know, anti showing uh, anti-social behavior, very sort of avant-garde in its approach to social consciousness and awareness. It's not like the Academy was stuck in an older f- mindset. I mean, it was giving these fairly radical films, you know, uh, recognition, right? And, and at least nominations. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think we have to hold it accountable. On a side note, I guess I'll bring this up right now. I find it interesting that I, I believe, if I'm, if I'm not correct, incorrect here, Ebert named Taxi Driver, the best film of the 70s, yet he named in 1976 a different film the number one film of the year. He named Taxi Driver number two of the year. Do either of you know what he named the number one of 1976? Uh, this is about as obscure as Terry's what uh, street corner did uh, the uh, the campaign work on question. Gosh. Um, which means it's obviously not one of the one of the ones that no up there no no i'm gonna go the outlaw josie wales <laughs> i'm gonna That's, say the tenant those are, those are uh, pr- pretty decent guesses but not even close the correct answer is francois truffaut's film l'argent to push or small change yes ebert named that the best movie of the year of 76 and then later named uh, taxi driver the best movie of the 80s interestingly enough he, he did the exact same thing in the, for the 1980s he named the black stallion the best film of 1980 raging bull was number two and then later said raging bull was the best movie of the 80s i don't know i just that thought that was like the tree of life where he named it one of the great ten, like 10 greatest movies of ten, all time, and it was but... only number three on his 2011 list yeah, yeah. <laughs> so wasn't always what we're saying consistent. here is is this era of scorsese his films were not necessarily appreciated in their time. Right, that's that's the point I'm trying to get at, is that maybe people didn't realize just how great of a filmmaker they, they uh, were being exposed to. Uh, ju- just just for reference, I have Taxi Driver number 4 of 76, behind Network Rocky and All the President's Men. Hmm. Okay. Well, you were like the Oscar voters back then. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm kind of like Todd, who says it's one of it's one of the greatest films of all time, but only in Scorsese's top five. Well, it's because it, he's it, got like ten movies that are in my like top hundred. So, I don't yeah. think All the Presidents Men is that great of a movie. It's like okay. I don't think it's that great. Uh, I just rewatched it recently. I love that movie. It's okay. It's not. I don't. It's it's not like revolutionary like Taxi Driver was. All right. Well, let's get into this. Uh, what? Um, let's hear. What do we start with? Highest War. That, yeah, I, I well, I mean, it's kind of obvious, but I think we could change this one to being who else could have possibly played Travis Bickle. Ooh, I like it. Ooh, I like it. That's good. Okay. You talking to me? You talking to me? You talking to me? 
Well, who the hell else are you talking to? Talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. Who else could have played Travis? Pick? Like, are we talking like in 1976, or like who would play him today? Ever, ever. I mean, that there's Anyone not, ever. not a whole lot of options. <laughs> like, I, I, I thought like maybe early Brando would have the, like the physical and psychological transformation capable of doing it, or maybe like present day, uh, or maybe like ten years ago, uh, Ryan Gosling. Possibly, but that's about all I could come up with. I mean, you could you can see a little Travis Bickle in uh, in Ryan Gosling's character in Drive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's not a mistake. Yeah. I mean, it, it's immediately because of what we were talking about and the comparisons it's drawn. It's kind of hard to not put Joaquin Phoenix in that in that category too, of someone who could have played Travis Bickle. Uh, since the character is so is so similar, or and and has been compared so much to the Joker, yeah, that's a good one. I I also think like there are some actors in the eighties, like eighties Matt Dillon. I think could have nailed it. I mean, maybe would have had age like a little bit, um, or even River Phoenix. Maybe like had you know he lived a little longer. I think he could have nailed that role. Like you know, social alienation. I think the real question we have to ask ourselves though is who would have made the worst Travis Bickle of all time? Uh, I mean, there's so many different ways you can go with that. Maybe Danny DeVito? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seeing him with a mohawk would be really... Oh, gosh. <laughs> he goes from Martini to Travis Bickle. Um... <laughs> or how about Sylvester Stallone? I mean, no one could have taken that seriously, right? Uh, I don't know. There's a, there's a, I could see a bit of that. I'm thinking more like something like Lucas Black or something. I feel like that would be as <laughs> bad as Black. it gets. Uh, I'm trying to think of someone that like would have been cast in it as like a serious option that it just wouldn't have worked with. Like I could see. I could see a, a time when like they would have tried to cast like Jack Nicholson in that part, or uh, like I, I Bert, think he could have done it though, or like Burt Reynolds. No, I Bert, could have seen cast. Burt Reynolds part. claims he turned down the part of Travis Bickle. Did you see that? <laughs> I did not. <laughs> yeah, he claims that it was the biggest mistake of his career. Now I don't know if that's true or not, but that would have been some crazy casting. And in a weird way, I think he he maybe could have pulled it off. I I could almost see it in a way. Like, I feel like one of the keys to De Niro's performance in this movie is how he underplays everything. So I would really, like, avoid someone who goes over the top. So maybe, like, Willem Dafoe would have made a terrible, uh, terrible Travis Bickle. Or Sean Penn. Or Sean Penn, or, like, um, Richard Dreyfus. I mean, that would have been just sort of a disaster. J- Jim Carrey. I could see I could see a scenario where Jim Carrey well, Jim was Carrey, cast in that role. I mean, Jim Carrey, basically, like, the Travis Bickle Jim Carrey is, like, the cable guy, right? I mean, and he's, he's pretty entertaining <laughs> in that. Uh, yeah, yeah. So everyone has Robert, Robert, Robert De Niro as the highest war in this movie? I mean, are there any other possible candidates? I mean, I mean we, he, ba- who, he is the movie. Pretty much, you could, we couldn't make a case for you know Albert Brooks or Jodie Foster or anyone else like that. No. No. 
<laughs> okay. Well, that solves that then. I mean, I guess I'm in agreement. It, it, because I think we're all just kind of fooling ourselves if we tried to say anyone else would, was the, the, the highest war. But Yeah, that's yeah. why I changed the question. <laughs> well done, Todd. Okay. So we should go to worst performance now. Okay. Worst performance. I have a worst performance. Go for it, Terry. And, and, and as I was watching, I thought this was pretty easy for me. Um, my worst performance... Hold on, i got to find him here. You forgot um, it? Yes. No, no, no. I, had to find, I have to find the actor's name. Uh, my worst performance is Leonard Harris as Senator Palantine. Uh, are you Charles Palantine, a candidate? Yes, I am. I'm one of your biggest supporters, you know. I tell everybody that comes in this taxi that they have to vote for you. Why, thank you. Travis? Oh. Um, like, if you're watching, like, the, the, the speech he gives, like, at the rally where, where Travis is there and, it, and gets, like, gets caught, it is the worst imitation of a politician I have ever seen. Like he is, he is as deadpan, and like worse. Like you can tell he's reading a script, and like he doesn't. He like did you guys see the the SNL sketch a couple weeks ago where Colin Jost uh, impersonated Pete Buttigieg, and the the joke was he didn't know what to do with his arms. That that's kind of what was going on with Senator Palantine because he was talking, and just randomly in the middle of a sentence he would put his hand out. And do like do like the the politician thing. It's like that that's not the point that you try to emphasize with your hands. He had no idea what he was doing. He had no idea how to give a speech, and yet he is already a U.S. senator running for president and won the nomination. I well. completely no not not no 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 <laughs> horrible horrible. Do we want to He's talk? The worst performance. Do we want to talk about Senator Palantine for a second? Because I have a lot of questions about his character. Let's do it. One of which is what I mean. He's got to be a Democrat, right? He his his platform. The only real platform he talks about is welfare for all. It doesn't really seem like a Republican talking point. And like I don't know of a Republican that would give a speech in front of a crowd at the park like he does. Um, I, I'm most impressed by the way he dresses, though. I think he really pulls off the linear stripes and the pink button-up shirt. He looks like a golfer in the senior PGA Tour. <laughs> but with a suit jacket. With a suit jacket, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> All that makes sense. All that makes sense. All right, that's it. Okay, we'll, we'll come back to Senator Palantine. I, I, have, I, I, I have some more things to say about him, but I think they're in the flaws from this movie. So okay. I'll, I'll, wait, I'll wait till then. Okay, All well, right. my worst performance is uh, uh, Civil Shepherd as Betsy. Then what exactly do you want? Would you like to come have some coffee and pie with me? Why? Why? Yeah. I'll tell you why. I think you're a lonely person. I drive by this place a lot. I see you here. I see a lot of people around you. And I see all these phones and all this stuff on your desk. That means nothing. Who we, we found out in Vegas. Uh, I bet Zach that she was not nominated for Best, Best Sporting Actress. And oh, I that's won right. Some money on that. Um, Nicely done. <laughs> but 
But I, I feel like she is just really, really wooden all the whole time. She's, like, incapable of inflecting any emotion, and she's, like, whiny and looks almost, like, stoned the entire time she's on screen. Like, a robot could have read better lines, honestly. And I, I th- I've always thought that she is just so atrocious in this movie, and, and, I mean, she's only in there because she's a pretty face, essentially, but you could, I could name, you know, 20 actresses in 1976 that would have been better, or, and, and would have, <laughs> I don't know, would have actually got, gotten a little substance out of that character rather than just having her be the, the pretty blonde. I agree with a lot of what you said there, Todd, and, and, but I agree with you. Those are the reasons why she's perfect for this role, though. I mean, she's someone who, like, is, to a certain extent, someone who uh, is, like, sort of phony and someone who's not necessarily the most informed person in the world and someone who Travis uh, uh, obsesses over. Uh, I I think she's kind of perfect for this role. And it's interesting to see, like, the backstory of this movie, which is that Marty wanted to find someone who is Sybil Shepard-like until he realized just cast Sybil Shepard. And I don't know, I think she's awesome in this movie. Interesting. I think she's exactly what she needed to be. Anyways, yeah. Zach, what's your what's your uh, worst performance? Well, I, I'm shocked that neither of you said this performance. In fact, I thought I, I came up with uh, second string bad performances because I thought this was going to be the overwhelming obvious one, and that is Albert Brooks in this movie. I mean, he sucks. And <laughs> I mean, I I have a rule which is that I've never liked Albert Brooks in any movie he's ever made. Like I I hate Albert Brooks. I mean, I mean the way that you know some people are just t- turned off by certain actors. I am turned off by Albert Brooks. I don't find him funny. I don't find him amusing. I hate him in every single movie he's ever been. You could you could go from broadcast news to Mother to Lost in America to any movie he's ever done. Drive. Even even Drive. Fight I mean, he, like, that Drive is probably his best role because he's so horrible as a person in that movie. So like I could I could sort of go with that. Oh, he's awful and this is 42. I mean, like so, I think I think film I think filmmakers have gotten the message that like he's so terrible that you have to cast him as assholes. Um, he's terrible in this movie, but again, it's also sort of the role too he's so unfunny in this movie like his jokes are awful like the banter between him and betsy is just like it it, it, it's out of another movie it doesn't really belong it also is one of the flaws that i have with this movie and uh he's like and and the scene where he tries to light a match with his two fingers is just pathetic man i mean up your game you know His suits are terrible. He looks awful. Um, it, it, he's 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 really pathetic, and uh, his yearning for Betsy is pathetic. But I think that's also sort of the genius of Scorsese to put to to have this milk toast pathetic excuse for a guy be this guy who's also pining for Betsy. And uh, I guess in that way, it's like sort of a twisted Jedi mind trick that Albert Brooks is is perfect casting for it. But uh, the, I don't like it because he just takes away from the movie, and you know you can't take him seriously. He he sucks in this movie. Um, I saw a note here that uh, Harvey Keitel was originally offered that role, but Harvey Keitel decided he'd rather play the pimp. Good, good career move. And, and I would say that Albert Brooks's best performance is one that Todd mentioned. Finding Nemo is his best performance. Well, when he's not on screen, where you have to look at him, I would agree. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, pretty much. Well, well name I a mean, good I Albert Brooks movie. Biggest he douchebag. Uh. <laughs> Uh, I did find a list here. Let me see if I can find it again. I did find a list here of uh, other people that were considered for the role of Travis Bickle. Uh, where did the list go? It was right here. 
and now it's gone. Here we go. Uh, so other people considered for Travis Bickle, Jeff Bridges, Jack Nicholson, Dustin Hoffman, Warren Beatty, Burt Reynolds, Ryan O'Neill, Peter Fonda, Al Pacino, John Voight, Robert Blake, David Carradine, Richard Dreyfuss, Christopher Walken, Elaine Delone, uh, James Caan, Roy Scheider, Paul Newman, Marilyn Brando, Martin Sheen, Elliot Gould, Alan Alda, and George Hamilton. It's like a veritable who's who on like uh, you know Hollywood Squares in 1973. Yeah, a, pretty much great every list. working actor in 1976 <laughs> under the age of like 40 was considered for Travis Pickle. Like um, Dustin Hoffman, Ryan O'Neill, those would have been awful. <laughs> yeah, Ryan O'Neill would have. Paul thought. Newman would have been interesting, but he was too old. Probably twenty-six-year-old. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Um, Alan Alda would have been interesting. Was did know. you did you say Burt Reynolds on that list? He was on that list. Yeah. Okay. I did not hear Gene Wilder. That no, would have been, not Gene that, Wilder. That that would have been fun. I love Alain Delon. Like, I mean, like, I can't remember any English-speaking roles that that guy had. Like, we would have had a French accent in the movie. Like, really? Like, you know. I was a Vietnam veteran. I want to pick up the scum <laughs> off the streets and go drink wine. Yes. I'm moonlighting. <laughs> as a cabbie. I could not get sleep. No sleep here. <laughs> uh, all right, where are we going next? Well, I think, I, I know this list, this usually comes later in these episodes, but I, I really am curious. <laughs> I've been thinking about this category a while. Biggest stick man in this movie. I, I think we pull it out early, so to speak. No, no pun intended. Like, there's, there's several ca- candidates in this movie that I, th- I think we just need to talk about. All right, go for it, Zach. Okay, well, obviously it's not Tom, right? The the Albert Brooks character. That's that's just pathetic. Right. I mean, that's you know that's, and I don't think you can really go with Scout because that's just like very uncomfortable and you know not not very pleasant to talk about, um, or Sport. Oh. Excuse me. Did I say Scout? I meant yeah. Sport. Well, but you also put like prostitutes on your list of the biggest stick men of all time. So, I I, I guess I guess that's true. I don't know. It it's it's. It, that's that. But that's why I wanted to talk about this category. I I don't know if there is a great answer to this question. Um, I would maybe go with like Easy Andy. I mean that guy. Like you know, he's got connections. He can get you anything, anytime you want. Like maybe he's getting it in, but maybe he has to dish out in the middle of it to go make a sale somewhere. I'm not really sure. Like I don't have a good answer to this question. That's that's kind of why I brought it up because I wanted to see what both of you would say. Well, I I wrote down Palantine because I feel like he he has that sort of aura about him where, I mean, he's like a smooth talker. He gives people what they want and he's like able to engage people, even Travis, like in the in the cab and leave them somewhat satisfied and wanting to follow him. I could see how he could drop a few lines and get it in whenever he wants. Like if if he has the, you know, at the right bar or something, especially because of his his, his, uh, smooth dressing and all that, whatever. I just saw the perfect one. I don't know why I didn't write this down. What about the guy in the cab early in the movie who's like, Cabby, if uh, you hurry, you know, there's money for you in this, you know? But, but you know, he's, he's with a hooker, so I don't know if that really counts as a stick man. That, uh, you know, according to Michael Rapport's definition, you know, Burgess Meredith didn't have to hire hookers. He was just a stick man, you know? But I'm going to go with, uh, with the guy that literally has the words stick and man in the title of his character. 
Um, now it's separated by the word up because he was the stick up man in the in the convenience store. But he's he no, he's not giving me my answer. But I thought just thought that was really funny. <laughs> the stick up man. I would I would go yeah. with that one. Yeah, he, he needs an untimely no, end. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with wizard. Oh, you, no wizard. Are you, is that a joke? Come on, wizard's not getting it in. <laughs> Wizard's been working on this beat for 17 years, and he doesn't even have his own cab. <laughs> he, he doesn't want his own cab. He only, he, only, Wizard, he only takes what he wants. Wizard does not get it in, man. He goes to the cabbie bars at 3 in the morning. He's not talking to women anytime soon. He's, okay, he's, then, I, then I'm going with uh, with Andy the gun salesman. That's what I... I, I mean, that, that's at least reasonable. Like, he's a slick talker, you know? He could he could talk his way in anything. Like, he was... I think Travis was even thinking about buying a Cadillac for $5,000. He, I think that the, he had the, the glimmer of hope in his eye that he could do it. Or uppies or roofers. I mean, he, he was really... Or roofies. He was really trying to, you know, he, he could make a convincing case to anyone. But he also and, looks like a vampire. That's true. The, now, the, now, not big is, in the looks department. Isn't the story that that guy actually was, like, like a, a gun dealer in New York City? I don't know. I believe uh, be I've heard that, that too, yeah. Yeah, I think he actually was uh, was someone that did that. Now, another candidate for Stickman that we, we could mention, too, is the, the African-American gentleman who is banging uh, Mar- Marty's wife in the movie. I mean, he, he clearly has something going on that makes him fairly irresistible to women. So, you know, he's, he's the only one, like, legitimately getting in that, that we know of, at least if we believe Marty's testimony in the back of his cab. Yeah. But he's also unseen. And he might not be African American. Marty might just be a racist. There there is a, a distinct possibility of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's the Marty's other character, the guy sitting outside the the campaign thing. Who's that? I don't know what you're talking about. Um, well the first time you see Marty when he's he's just like sitting outside the the campaign two- office. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, he, he has plays, two cameos in this like movie? A, yeah, he's like he's like he's just wearing like a white t shirt and jeans, he's like a homeless guy or something. That's interesting. You never actually hear his voice or anything. Terry, you noticed him, right? I did not, no. I, I But I, I think I've, I've heard that, that before. Yeah, well that was his like total Hitchcock cameo, but like not like playing the man watching the silhouette when actually have blinds. We could go the random Swedish porn actors in uh, Swedish Marriage Manual as the biggest, collectively the biggest stick men in the movie. Because so they literally are getting it in. I was going to say, so you're not going to count the prostitutes, but you're going to count the porn stars. I mean, I, I, you know what? That, that's a little bit of an uh, uh, exaggeration to call them porn stars. It kind of looks more like, like footage for a hygiene film. Um, I, but uh, they, they're getting it in. All right. Well, let's move on. Yes, please, please do. Um, okay, uh, I want to talk about the ending of this movie. Because I think the ending of this movie is definitely up for interpretation a little bit. Um, so the, the, the very end, you know, he goes through the whole shootout, and then... Um, then you see him, you hear the letter from Iris's family, and then he's driving his cab and he drives Betsy off. 
Does all of that actually happen? No. Yes. Ooh, okay. So, so Zach says all of it happens. Todd says no. How much of it, Todd, do you think actually happens? None of it. Like, it, it, the, the movie ends, or, like, his life ends when at the, uh, like, at the shootout. And uh, all that stuff is his dream. Like, his dream of him being this martyr, then being, like, the warrior hero guy that saved all these lives, but in his own deranged mind, that was what... Which which actually brings up some sort of, like, a flaw in, in that, because, like, it's... I think that's pretty clear that none of that happens, but, it, like, the thing, the issue is that, like, he, do, he tries to kill himself at the end, which would completely take away from him <coughs> being the hero, because it would make it the murder-suicide thing and, like, a... I don't know. It would ruin the narrative if if he was actually if he actually did shoot himself, but instead he just died anyway. But I don't know. I guess it was good that he ran out of his twenty four bullets or whatever he had twenty two. He didn't have twenty two bullets. He he fired the gun twenty two times. Nah. You get it right. You got the point for that. Yeah. You should know. All right, Zach. You said all of it happens. Well, besides the fact that both Schrader and Scorsese say and have consistently said that that is not a dream sequence um i think it ha it, it's real because i think it's consistent with the with the sort of politics of this movie which is that travis bickle is someone who does not suffer the slings and arrows of the society he lives in um he's someone who sort of uh is he has this isolation and this boredom because of his privilege, his white privilege, I guess you would say. And, uh, you know, he's able to get his job easily and he's able to go about uh, his business, whatever. And uh, I think it would be consistent with the politics of this movie that he's able to get away with killing people and targeting people and being ruthlessly cold and being still considered uh, a hero. Um, I mean... I guess I said yes to that original question because Marty and Schrader have constantly said that 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 it, it's not a dream. But but I I believe that it is a really viable question, and the practical details would would seem to make it hard to believe that he would be considered a hero. And especially the letter at the end coming from Iris's father is just I mean that's that's plain ridiculous. But uh, but but I I think it would be consistent that he would be considered a, a hero in as deranged a society that he's living in. Okay, I've got I've got a radical theory here. What if um what if like everything from the time he buys the guns to when he picks up Betsy at the end was the dream? What if his whole vendetta against Palantine and then saving Iris, what if that all was the dream? And then he just continued on his life later on. With well, a bunch of guns? No, like, like from, like, like, from where, like, he even says in that moment, like, so, like everything's going to be different from now on, and then he goes and buys the guns. So what if he didn't, what if, like, everything from when, like the scene he buys the guns to to the end oh, was the dream and then he just went like, back he, he on dream, it he dreamed the whole vendetta and it was all in his mind and then he just continued to live his life well that's an interesting take that I would never have thought about but 
I don't know. You almost sounded like Miles there. Well, that's an interesting uh, perspective. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, essentially, you're asking: Is the movie fiction or nonfiction? You know, is it like a fictionalized version of Travis Bickle's life, or is it like what uh, you know what actually happens, which is you know he dies a you know unsavory uh, person who just uh, killed three people? I don't know. Yeah. I, I I think I think we have to go off what Marty and Paul say. They say they say it's real. Like, come on. I mean, what are we talking about? We're, I've never we're going heard off them the, say the, that. They've constantly said it's real. They they did a they did a commentary to the film for a Laserdisc, and they said it was real. And then I think they did. Paul Schrader did a Reddit thread a few years ago where he said it, the ending is real. I mean, they've they've never deviated from their interpretation of the ending. But see, you know. I even when I first watched Drive, I thought the end of Drive was like this a similar thing where he actually dies in the parking lot, and then him driving off in that like hazy, uh, really bright, whatever, uh, like light driving down the road. Like, I, I always thought that wasn't real. Like, that was, like, him going off into the sunset or something. But, like, apparently it actually is real. I don't know. It, I, it, does, it, it does seem unrealistic that his hair would grow back that quickly, though. That's one thing I didn't know. Because yeah, I was thinking about it as like, I was watching it. All the gun wounds, like, preventing him from driving. Like, I don't know. I think, it, I think especially that last scene of him picking up Betsy... It it's too perfect and ties it too much in a bow. Yeah, it's, like, it's not for a, fairy a movie tale. this chaotic. Yeah. No, I think that scene I sort of believe. The thing I don't believe is that his that the the, the 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 father would write a letter to him. That seemed a little bit ridiculous. But the other stuff I thought was believable. You don't think that if she had read that he had saved you know a child prostitute and was heroic, she would have been. You know, and, and it's not like they actually have a relationship. They, got, they don't consummate anything. She just says, you know, can I pay you? And he drives off. I think that's a great way to end the movie, by the way, too. I, I don't know. It, it, it just, it feels, it feels a little too dreamlike. Well, yeah, I mean, well, there's no way he would be written in the papers being a hero for going and doing a mass murder uh, for including innocent people. Why not? This is a society that's deranged. This is a society that's going to elect a PGA senior golfer president. You know? <laughs> uh, it's, it's, I think it's a really interesting question. And Yeah, Scorsese and Schrader might say one thing, but I also don't think it's necessarily that cut and dry either. I would be dis- I would be disappointed if that, if that was considered a dream sequence because th- there's nothing up to that point that would make you believe that they would make it a dream sequence. Like up to that point the movie has been utterly realistic in its depiction of this first person narrative seen through his perspective. Why would it be an unreliable perspective? I Because up to that point nothing goes Travis's way. And that ending would be perfect for Travis. Yeah. No. Yeah. It, it, it's it's a fascinating talking point, I guess. Okay, well, well let, let's move on to another category. What what about what about stuff that that has not aged particularly well in this movie? And maybe this gets into our flaws category. But one of the reasons I wanted to do this movie is because even though it is a masterpiece, there are things about this movie that are very like nineteen seventies. And you know, we now have Joker, which is in what some people call like an updated spin on on Taxi Driver. But but what are things that have not particularly aged well in this movie? Uh, he only pays a dollar eighty five for all those concessions. Like that would be at least twenty dollars now. Like he bought like 
six different candies and like a popcorn and a soda. Like, there's no way that only ever would cost a dollar eighty-five anywhere you go. That was one thing I noticed. At least, yeah. At least, yeah. Although it was at the porn theater. Maybe they have discounts there. That's true. That's true. If so, that's like where you should go to buy, you know, popcorn candy at any time. Yeah, yeah. It's gonna be that cheap. It's gonna be a buck eighty-five. I don't know where I have to go. If it's gonna only gonna be a buck eighty-five, well, that's just where, go grab that's it where, and leave. That's where theaters make their money is on concessions. They don't make it on the box office. But I guess porn theaters maybe do make their money on people actually buying the tickets. But at the same time, <laughs> if they really want candy, <laughs> I don't know. Terry, did you have any things that didn't date, age well particularly? Um, I I'm still thinking. Okay, I have one I'll mention, and maybe it'll let, give you time to simmer a little bit. So, one of the things that, that struck me as I watched this movie again for, like, the tenth time is, I do not understand for the life of me how cabs worked in 1976. Like, it is really confusing. So, like, why is it, why is there a guy with a microphone calling out the cabs? I, I don't get that. Like, were they calling in the, the people that need to be picked up? Like, and, and on what? Like, on, a, on some sort of, like, phone booth? Like, I don't, I don't get that. And I also don't understand what Travis is writing down on his clipboard. Even, there's even a character that says, like, you know, put down your clipboard. Like, I, I just don't understand the way that taxis work back in the 70s in this movie. It makes no sense to me. Like, I remember the show Taxi, also with Danny DeVito, who we've mentioned in this podcast. But, like, you know, like, there were microphones in that show. But, like, what, what, what does the guy do who calls, out the ca- who calls out the taxis? Can someone, can a listener who was born in, before 1976 explain this to me? Because I don't get it. It's confusing. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> like what, what what are they you know how would they how would they know where to direct the cab drivers to drive to it's not like people had cell phones they weren't calling the cab station but oh, i got nothing uh, yeah i don't know either uh so a couple things i have though um are uh one um the uh like the easy access he had to uh, to a politician, like there's no way, yeah, uh, that's a true. U.S. senator that is you know running for president would get into a random taxi cab, even if he's like asking to, and and just be able to show up at a rally in a trench coat filled with guns. There's there's no way that would that could ever happen. Um, another thing I would say is. Uh, is just how, um, how like wretched and deprived and just horrible it portrays New York City. Um, New York City, especially you know, in like the last ten or twenty years, has really cleaned up quite a bit. And yeah, at the time this was made, New York City, yeah, it was, it was still New York City, but it was not a safe place to be and that's kind of the 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 realm taxi driver exists in that's not necessarily the case anymore it's not that horrible of a place now definitely still has its its rough spots as any big city would have but to be that it i i don't think it even had that that in like remember like it was looked at it i mean even in that 
like a comedy Christmas comedy in 1992 it's still it's that that feeling about New York yeah well I mean that's also about a 10 year old being in a gigantic city like that for the first time but and and still that's like early 90s I said in like the last 20 years the the that the uh, tone of that city has really changed yeah, there's no whores, skunk pussies, buggers, queens, fairies, <laughs> dopers, and junkies. Sick, venal. You, not not quite like that, no. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a really good point. I, I think younger viewers would not quite understand that. I mean, even I don't really understand that either, but I guess yeah. it was a pretty terrible place to be. As, as someone who has walked the streets of New York City at about midnight, uh, yeah, that, that side of New York City I've never seen before. Now, I've only walked specific parts of it, but still, I don't think that that side of New York City necessarily exists anymore, as as much as it portrays in Taxi Driver. What's ironic is that he derides New York City, and yet, like, he goes to a porno theater. I mean, like, he indulges in the sort of life I, I to a certain extent can we talk about the porn films I, I really want to talk about sometimes sweet susan and swedish marriage manual i had a question so if swedish marriage manual were remade in 2019 who would be in it and who would direct it <laughs> i think it would have to be with mads mickelson and alicia vikander because they're swedish but i think we're open to interpretation about who would direct it i'd be really interested to see I'd, I'd want to watch it. I don't know that many Swedish directors, but, uh... What? Lassie Hallstrom. Jose Padilla. Jose Padilla. <laughs> Lassie Hallstrom is yeah. about as far from something like that as you could possibly get. Yes, Lassie Hallstrom. I'm going to go from doing a Nicholas Sparks novel to doing... <laughs> and how come... How come you make? How could you make a movie called Swedish Marriage Manual in the nineteen seventies and not have ABBA on the soundtrack? Like that's one of the flaws in this movie. Come well, on, we didn't see the whole movie. We I really guess, didn't see any of it. Well, we saw parts of it. How many times did Travis see it? Probably at least a few, right? But that was more at a high-end theater. I mean, as Terry pointed out in trivia, that was not the theater that he most commonly frequented. But it did look like there were several people in that movie theater. I mean, it was a pretty packed... There were definitely more people that were seeing Swedish Marriage Manual than the theater I was at that were seeing The Lighthouse. I mean, it was a much more kind of like, you know, mainstream popular film for 1976. Wait, are you saying that Swedish Marriage Manual was a was a mainstream movie? Yeah, I think so. I think it's like Burt Reynolds and Boogie Nights. I think it sort of attained that, you know, that, that bridge between mainstream cinema and porno with, like, a strong narrative thrust. It was the, it was the movie that Jack Horner always wanted to make. But Swedish. And then there's, and then there's Sometimes Sweet Susan, which, which was not seen in the movie. Here's my question. If... If Betsy had been into Swedish Marriage Manual, would they have stayed for the double feature with Sometimes Sweet Susan? We'll never know. It's one of the great questions of this movie. Well, if, if you so, used, I mean... You that... use the word great quite liberally there, Zach. 
That would make Travis almost a stick man, then, if his date actually went according to plan. Yes, quite possibly. I don't know. You know, here's the here's the thing. Betsy is kind of here's the the, the thing that no one talks about in this movie. Everyone talks about oh, Betsy's so disgusted. If you watch that scene when they first go and go to like the box office at that movie theater, she's kind of into it. Okay, she's not like that turned off. She's kind of like oh wow, this guy's kind of ballsy. Like he's bringing me to a porno. Like this is a porno. Like are you serious? Like wow, but it was no more one's like, ever pulled the- like oh, this is a dirty movie. This is a dirty movie. Because she like has she's got, no she, she, this is a dirty movie. She's got kind of a twinkle in her eye, though. Like she's a little bit like, wow, you know what? The the fucking milk toast Tom guy would never take me to this. Like he's too much of an asshole to do something like that. Like this guy's got balls. He's taking me to a dirty movie. But when it and starts, the, then she walks. But when out it starts, she, she walks out. And right. then she, yeah, then she's she's like, I don't like these movies. It's like, yeah, you knew that before you went in. Like, so what? <laughs> And, 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 like, she's walking out at the most, frankly, the most inoffensive scenes, which are the orgy scene, and then the close-up of the sperm entering the vagina, like, or, like, like, that's, like, from a hygiene film. I don't know why you'd be offended about that, but, you know, whatever. Maybe that's the inconsistencies with her character. Sorry, Terry. If your kids are listening, turn, turn this off. This is getting too, this is, this is getting triple X rated. Uh, oh, Yeah. I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what 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 are other categories we have? We we said worst performance, we said biggest stick man. How about how about who would Nicolas Cage play? Oh, let's see here. Nicolas Cage. And then we got to do favorite minor character because there are several great minor characters in this movie, just like many great movies. Uh Nicolas Cage would play uh Nicholas Cage would play Passenger Watching Silhouette, played by Martin Scorsese. Oh, good call. Yeah, yeah. that's that that's pretty much dead on. Yeah, yeah. That I, I I like I was I was thinking about that. And that that was one I made sure to think about as I was watching him. Like, yep, yep, this would be this would be him. That's good. But what about sport? I mean, what about the Harvey Keitel character? Yeah, that was he, the other one could, I was looking he, at. He, he could really nail that. I feel that like role. he's played that before, even like in Sunny. Like, I think he, he was, like, a really dirty pimp. And he even directed that movie. See, I see. I could totally see him playing the Martin Scorsese part, and he would be, it would be, like, the version of him that's, like, the pretentious douchebag character he plays in Gone in 60 Seconds when he's talking to the car dealer, Todd. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? To Roger Stone make a right. Ha 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 but the reason that he could play sport really well is that he he needs to have a death scene in this movie and uh martin scorsese characters does not die at least on screen like i think the on-screen death of the harvey keitel character would really fit nicholas cage's uh acting skill set could nicholas cage have ever pulled off travis pickle i think he could have i think the narration really fits that like nicholas cage's uh range well I think that would have been really interesting, but I I also think he could have he would have played like any of his buddies at the diner. Like I think he could have pulled off any of them, especially yeah. what's his face, uh, wizard, yeah, wizard. I'm fa- I love wizard's story about the midget that he had in his car ride. <laughs> I thought about asking a trivia question about the midget. 
Like, that doesn't really belong in this movie. There's there's a few things in this movie that don't really... Like, everyone everyone talks about how dark and depressing and deathly this movie is, but there's, like, some moments that are, like, really funny in this movie, and his story about the midget is, is one of them. Like, that, that, that that's a pretty amusing anecdote. And, and like, the line that he says about how he always had... No, wait, it's not... that it, This is not um, the uh, Peter uh, uh, Boyle character, but the other guy says, sometimes I, I just... I would love to pick up a midget. Like, that just doesn't belong in this movie. That belongs in, like, an Adam Sandler movie or something, but it's, it's, it's still pretty amusing. It's Todd, pretty good. Todd, did you have anyone that Nicolas Cage could play other than the, the characters we mentioned? No. Well, I mean, I... I... I wrote down Travis and any of his buddies at the diner, so that, that was that was all that I had come up with. Although sport is a good answer. Okay, so then what about uh, favorite minor character? Well, I have two. Uh, one of which is the passenger watching silhouette because it's a scene from like another movie. It feels like it doesn't really doesn't belong in there. It's really haunting and strange and like kind of disturbing but it's amazing to watch marty do it because he's really awesome in it but it makes no sense that he would cast himself into that when he could get he could have gotten like joe pesci or somebody like that would have been really awesome playing that part but he's just so arrogant at the time that he just is like all right i'll just i'll just make this my like little mini oscar scene kind of thing and it's so bizarre because at the start of that scene you feel like you feel like you just like accidentally had the mic open on him directing de niro through that scene all right all right no 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 pull over to the side here pull over to the side pull over to the side. i didn't tell you to do that i tell you no. that i said just pull over to the side <laughs> exactly with all due respect to jason robards martin scorsese should have won best supporting actor in 1976 <laughs> like it would have it would have complimented beatrice straight pretty nicely if they were going to give it out to five minute soliloquies like in all seriousness he is fantastic in that scene like you know, as great as De Niro is in this movie, I mean, he's, you know, absolutely one of the great performances of all time, but, like, Martin Scorsese, like, that is, like, that's like a sixth man coming off the bench and just draining threes, like, irrationally, like, shooting up threes and just nailing them. He He's amazing in that scene. Like, it makes you regret that there weren't more movies made with Scorsese as an actor. He's he's incredible in that scene. He had, like, quiz show, right? And that, the... Yeah, and, well, wasn't he in Guilty by Suspicion, too, that, that uh... That uh, uh, the movie about the the communist right, scare, right. and I think he was in um, he was in uh, Round Midnight too, the Herbie Hancock movie. But like he he's he's phenomenal in that in that role. He's that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. So that's a great pick, Todd. Well, and my other one was Andy the gun salesman because I don't know he looks like a Bible salesman. You're healed. They go Terry. Thank you. Go that quote. <laughs> Um, but he also, uh, he inspired a couple awesome scenes in Breaking Bad with the gun salesman, uh, in that movie that, or that show that he's brought back a couple of times and, and really, oh, the guy I, that drives the truck, is, is that you're talking about? No, the guy, the guy that no. he, he buys the, uh, the big old, uh, machine gun thing from Walter, the, the gun that he uses to take out all the Nazis. Oh, I don't know if I remember that. Is that season five? Yeah. Well, he's in. Shit. He's in the. He's in. He he buys his, the very first gun that he gets in like season two is from that same guy though. I thought you were talking about the guy that drives the chicken truck. No. That guy sells guns too. Well, maybe he just delivers them. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But either. I don't know. I and I love that he immediately realizes that when Travis is, uh, 
like kind of crazy and he doesn't care about the money he like immediately tries to upsell him and sell him a freaking car i mean that guy is badass even though he does look like a vampire he uh he is a he's an awesome sporting character good call all right terry did you have any random characters you liked um i mean i do like the I do like Scorsese. I already mentioned that. One that I thought was kind of funny is the um, is the girl selling concessions. That like just the mm. fact that that Travis dares to say more than three words to her, she has to call the manager. I, I thought that was kind of weird, and but that also kind of speaks to the time. But yeah, I thought that was kind of funny. It's like leave me alone, leave me alone, manager. It's like oh, fine, fine, fine. <laughs> Just by wanting to actually, you know, say something. I thought that was interesting. But, and that uh, makes her one of your favorite supporting characters? It, it was it was noticeable. It was noticeable. But I, it's Scorsese. I mean, Scorsese's role, I mean, that's that's like the creepiest, craziest little, like, two-minute scene, like, almost of all time. Of a character that shows up for a two-minute scene and then leaves. And it doesn't get much better than that. Well, well, my answer would also be Easy Andy, who I think that's that's my favorite scene in the whole movie. Um, you know, he kills it in that scene. It's it's awesome. Um, he deserves his own movie, and uh, I would love to see like an El Camino sort of spinoff about Easy Andy's life as as a gun, drug, Cadillac salesman. Um, but uh, I also have to say I do I, I I am intrigued by this the soap opera. I think that Travis is watching on TV about the uh, illegitimate marriage when like the woman's saying like our marriage isn't legal but uh it's still a marriage and then travis shoots the tv so I, they're not really like you know small characters i, I just want to see what's what what that tv show is along with of course swedish marriage manual yeah there's there's a lot of like of references to other movies and television throughout this that i thought was really interesting and music i mean chris christopherson plays a big role in this movie it's true maybe chris christopherson's probably the biggest stick man in this movie he's a prophet and a pusher <laughs> a walking, walking contradiction, contradiction. Mm -hmm. and apparently someone who warrants great cinematography work for his uh his other film that he was a part of in 1976 oh yeah yeah. yeah, Star is yeah. Born. Well, that was by uh -huh. Robert Surtees, who I actually heard a whole lecture about Robert Surtees' cinematography once. He was, like, this really old guy, and he, like, had done the cinematography for, like, Ben-Hur, and then he won the Oscar for The Graduate in 1967, but no one realized he was old. Everyone thought that he was, like, young because he did all this, like, younger, more avant-garde, like, 1960s, fresh style of cinematography, but it was just the films he worked on. He was actually old. So just just putting that out there. So, okay, do we have any uh, conspiracy theories? Maybe. Well, uh, I noticed two things. One thing, I, I and they're both related to Tarantino because I know he loves this movie. Uh, at one point, Sport yells at one of the one of the the uh, prostitutes, "Bitch, be cool!" I said, "Bitch, be cool!" <laughs> and I'm like, "Well, That's that is like point. basically exactly uh, the way that uh, Jules is talking to." Uh, Pumpkin, honey, and, uh, honey bunny, or honey pumpkin, bunny, yeah. yeah. 
And uh, also, I think that this movie might be why Tarantino originally decided to work at the porno theater they ended up buying and making into the New Beverly. I think that might be, uh, there might be something there. Yeah. But that'd be my question I would ask him if I ever saw him. When we um, interview him on the podcast. There we go. We need to get, we need to get someone to interview on here. I have the, that's the next get. I have two conspiracy theories. Both are related to Travis's uh, deployment in Vietnam. The first question is, um, apparently, uh, well, no, the first question is, uh, is Travis Bickle Mike in The Deer Hunter? Are, are they the same person? Mm. So what this would be, like, post every, all the events in The Deer Hunter? Yes. It's possible. Like, but why would why would he? But they would join the army, not the marines, right? I guess that's true. But why do you why do you get honorably discharged? That's the question I want to know. Like, what 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 was it? Was it because of his mental state, or was he well, injured? Like, there's no indication that he. Well, you're honorably discharged, like if you're, if your time is up. Right. I don't know. I assume, like, discharged is Like, if not... your enlistment is up, you are honorably discharged. I guess my question is, why didn't Travis have more guns earlier? Like, he, he fought in Vietnam, you know? And he's, uh... I mean, he's honorably discharged, so ostensibly he would be a proficient uh, person in the Marines. Like, I'm surprised he doesn't own weapons up to that point. My other question is, or my other conspiracy theory is that uh, the inspiration for Travis Bickle, apparently, according to IMDb Trivia, was Oliver Stone, who was also a Vietnam veteran and also wore a, a trench coat exactly like uh, uh, Robert De Niro's in this movie. That sounds like fake news <laughs> it, it could be okay so i was looking for something going back a couple steps so zach you said you wanted to see an entire movie about easy andy um there's one that actually exists really uh oh, there's wow. a documentary there's a documentary in 1978 called american boy a profile of stephen prince where martin scorsese uh just interviews stephen prince and talks about his life because uh like he actually was like an expert in what he was playing and portraying in Taxi Driver. Oh my gosh. How have I not seen this movie? That sounds I awesome. Know. I don't know. I remember hearing about it. I I, want, I listened to another podcast that talked about Taxi Driver and they talked about this. And I was oh, trying yeah, to I'm find looking, it. I'm looking it up right now. This looks amazing. Oh my gosh. I gotta see this. Wow. Yeah, I know, right? Wow. Because he like legit was what he was playing. In, yeah. And, <laughs> in and Taxi he Driver. Probably, he probably sold drugs to Marty at the time. It's very possible. Yeah. It says here that Marty shot like 15 hours of footage interviewing Stephen Prince. That's amazing. (laughs) So anyways, there you go. Now you've got something to watch. Another conspiracy theory I have is, do we believe Quentin Tarantino's story about this movie? Which, if you haven't heard, uh, did you hear Quentin's story about this movie? No. So uh, he says that um, there's a legendary story that he had heard about it, about how Martin Scorsese was so upset with the studio, with Columbia, 
um, for having to cut down on the violence and trim the movie that there was actually a time when he had a loaded gun in the middle of the night and he thought about going to Columbia Pictures and shooting the executive who was demanding the cuts made on the film but throughout the night uh, people came to him like Brian De Palma and other directors like came to him like almost as a vigil to uh, try to argue against him doing that and that's kind of what influenced some of the cutting of the film at, toward the end of the movie and apparently Tarantino says it's like a legendary story in Hollywood but I, I don't know if that's true or not but that's yeah, that would I've, be a I've great conspiracy theory question yeah that is interesting I could see it being 100% true and 100% false all at the same time a walking contradiction exactly alright so uh Let's see here. What else do we have to do? MVP? LVP and MVP. LVP, MVP. Okay. Well, my LVP is Diane Abbott as the concession girl. Because, (laughs) like, she she really is just... She's bad at her job. Like, I mean, the guy is about to buy, like, a shitload of, of snacks to watch a porn. And she's getting in, like, trying to threaten him to get him kicked out just because he asked what her name is. Like, I mean, normally in a, at that time, I guess, in New York, you would think that that position would be filled with somebody who was, like, a lot more interested in flirting and, like, selling to the scum that actually watched those movies. But she is just so disinterested and she that she's just, like, going to turn away, like a, a, like, a normal customer. Like, she's terrible at her job. <laughs> I, I disagree. I think that's a horrible job to have. I think she has to put up with a lot of crap. And I think she does an admirable job of, of doing it. Why? I mean, look, she's there. This scene ostensibly takes place at 8 a.m. in the morning. I feel like, you know, he's just gotten off his shift. Like, th- th- this has to be a terrible job, you know. And she she turns him down and does it with, with, with powerful skill, you know. She's <laughs> had to do this many, many times. By the way, that movie theater, I mean, it looks like more like a... Like a just like a boardroom with a screen that's been pulled down and a couple chairs that have been set up. Doesn't look like much of a theater at all. But anyways. Hey Terry, did you know that Cinema 21 in Portland used to be a porno theater? It doesn't surprise me. It's the, the legendary theater where we watched uh, Inland Empire. And uh, yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. And in Bruges. And in yes, Bruges. And in Bruges. in Bruges. That was actually where I saw Boyhood too. That was the last time I went there. Yeah, that was the only theater Boyhood was at in town. So maybe these theaters cleaned up their act and started showing more mainstream movies. All right, my LVP. I'm gonna go uh, Albert Brooks's Tom as my LVP because he had to be so annoying and repulsive that it drove Betsy into falling for the next guy to walk in the door. <laughs> Which is what set off all the events of the entire movie. Like, if Betsy doesn't go out with Travis, then Travis doesn't flip out on Palantine and uh, and go down this whole rabbit hole. And it all is because Tom is just such a complete moron that Betsy will literally fall for anybody else. I'll play the male in the relationship. <laughs> That's why he's just a he's a douche. That's why we didn't even go with. He's the biggest douchebag for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'll call the police. 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 Officer. I'll I'll call the police. 
Uh, Zach, what about you? Uh, my LVP is the Secret Service agent who, um, after Travis, uh, he doesn't even fire a shot at Senator Palantine, but he, he goes into his pocket, and then he starts running away. And if you watch carefully, the Secret Service agent is within <laughs> striking distance of him and then runs into a fat guy and falls over. Yeah. I mean, that is terrible, terrible protection services. And, uh, yeah, I, maybe it's, it, it speaks of, you know, the quality of the people that Palantine has hired as his Secret Service protection. But uh, just, just terrible moves, man. you got to get better. That's a great call. That's a great call. I noticed that, too. And then it was just a one guy after him. Like, after he ran yeah, into the fat nothing, guy, it no immediately cuts to him in his apartment again. It's like, really? That's all it took? Was getting so, just like having one stumbling block in the way of the one guy chasing the you know potential assassin. Okay, yeah. I did read something that said that uh, that taxi driver potentially was inspiration for the guy who tried to assassinate Ronald Reagan. Yes. Well, he was obsessed with Jodie Foster. Right. And basically turned himself into Travis Pickle. Apparently. All right, MVP of this movie. All right, well, my MVP is Paul Schrader because he might be the world's worst living director, but he is a hell of a screenwriter when he wants to be. And, like, his script, like, is so perfect and so thick and detailed that I feel like it would it would have had to have been a really long script, even with the lack of dialogue. And... and I don't know. It, it, I feel like the narration is as good as it gets in movies, and I, I just don't. I don't see the movie ever being anything without having that screenplay, even more so than the direction and and, and De Niro's performance. It's the script. The script that it is what uh, makes the movie. Yeah, the voiceover it really works in this. I've seen some movies where it doesn't work at all, but it really does. It really does work in this. And also, the, the other thing I noticed watching this was there is a fine line when it comes to a screenplay between masterpiece and complete crap, because there are some definite parallels between taxi driver and first reformed. Yeah. Yeah. And like, seriously, there are definite parallels and we all agree that taxi driver is his masterpiece and first reformed is a pile of crap. And well, it's, it's because all because of the screenplay. A, that's what I'm saying. He's one of the worst directors in the world. But even but, even the screenplay for First Reformed, I mean, it, it, everyone was talking about how amazing it was. It wasn't. It was not good, and but it was very. It, you could definitely compare it to Taxi Driver, yeah. and uh, yeah. But one is one's great, and one is terrible. It's kind of funny how that works. And one got him the Oscar nomination. The other one didn't. The the wrong. Yeah. How one. about that? How about that? How about that, Lem? How about that, Lem? Guess you can keep your job. <laughs> All right. Uh, I don't know yet. Zach, go. <laughs> uh, my, my MVP is Bernard Herrmann for this movie, Benny Herrmann. Uh, you know, he died shortly after the, the completion of this movie. It was dedicated to him. I can't think of... Uh, I can't think of ever topping that. Can't. What, what's the line? No, I can't imagine ever I topping that. can't imagine that. ever topping that. Yeah, put another soundtrack in this movie, it doesn't work. Try it, just for fun. W wouldn't work. I think it would, but... Absolutely not. 
It's a perfect, perfect soundtrack. And, and quietly by someone who was not really known for like a ja- for their jazzy work. I mean, Herman was like known for his Hitchcock score, Hitchcockian scores with like strings and all that. And like, I don't know, this, this, this score is like perfect. Like when I think Taxi Driver, I don't think about the images. I think about the music first. Am I the only one that in watching this movie um, and listening to that, that score... Um, all I could think about was an old lady in a bathtub getting attacked by two stuffed animals. <laughs> like Toy Story 4. The plush rush. Oh. Yeah, no, I didn't think of that. Yeah, it's, it's that, 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 that was all. That was all I could think of as I was watching it. Anyways. Was that music in the movie or something? Or it, it was, yeah, I think Zach even was the one that referenced it, that said that the music is, it's not exact, but it's very, very similar to the Taxi Driver score. Anyways, hmm. uh, I'm going to go, let's see here, my MVP, we haven't talked much about, about her yet, so I'm going to talk about Jodie Foster as my MVP. Um, she was, how old was she when she made this movie? She was ridiculously young when she made this, so she was 14? She was 14 when she made this, um, and watching this, this is a very, very adult role, um, and it it needed to be someone that could at the same time be a kid, but also be the adult in the room too. And it took, it took an amazing actress to pull it off. And even at 14, you could tell that she was on her way to being an amazing actress. Um, she totally deserved the Oscar nomination that she got for this. Uh, and if you have someone else, I mean, you you could argue she had highest war too, because if you had someone else in the role of Iris, it potentially wouldn't have worked as well as it did, uh, because you needed someone that could that could uh, emote the way she did, and um, and yeah, so I'm gonna say the MVP is is Jodie Foster, and also just that character too, and what she meant meant to Travis, and the fact that you know he was going to do something horrible and instead decided to pivot and do something good is all because of this one girl. So, um, so yeah, I'm going to say both Jodie Foster and Iris are my MVP. Okay. All right. Well, I think that's it. Uh, let's, uh, let's wrap this up with a, with a quote of the day. Zach, you going to go first. All right, well, my quote comes from The Lighthouse, and uh, it is uh, Willem Dafoe, and you're going to have to excuse my indulgence for, for doing his accent, but he says, You're an open book. A picture, says I. A painted actress screaming in the footlights. A bitch what wants to be coveted for nothing but being a crying about a silver spoon. What should ya been yours? Now look at ye crying. Boo-hoo! What ya gonna do? Don't you want to see the movie after hearing that line? Should and your thoughts! Ah, oh, your thoughts! <laughs> There's some great dialogue in that movie. I and yeah, he talks about like what he was painting it. You know, it's got to look like the paint on a bordello or something like that. And yeah, it's just, it's it, it will be quoted many years from now, I'm sure. All right, I'm gonna go next. Uh, I've got uh, I've got a couple quotes here from Robert De Niro. Uh, that relate to Taxi Driver. Uh, the first one, uh, 
is uh, some people say New York's a great place to visit, but I wouldn't want to live there. I say that about other places. So that just shows De Niro's love for New York. And then the next one is uh, is about Taxi Driver and the his famous line that he had in there. And it just shows how uh, just how De Niro is a genius, but he doesn't take himself that seriously too. Uh, he said, you have no idea that years later people in cars would recognize you on the street and shout, you talking to me? I don't remember the original script, but I don't think the line was in it. We improvised. For some reason, it touched a nerve. That happens. And, and just his, his nonchalantness in, in, uh, in how he references possibly the most famous thing that he's ever said. Uh, yeah. I just thought that was kind of cool. So, there you go. Todd, what do you got? Uh, so, mine is a line from... Uh taxi driver and it, it mainly it's just because it's such a great line and i'm kind of jealous because i wish i was that quick on my feet to think of it like that and he because he's such a brilliant crazy person so when he's getting interviewed for his job he asks how's your driving record and he says clean real clean like my conscience and it's, it's, a, it's just a great scene and a great a great line and, a, and like great line delivery and he i don't know I, I I love when he I love to, I love that like half wry smile he gets when he says it too like he knows he's being gene, a genius. Yeah, that's a great one. All right, and with that we uh, we bring this podcast to a close. Thank you, uh, thank you again so much for listening. Uh, we will be back to you soon with another episode reviewing uh, something new and looking back at something old. So. Uh, Stay tuned for that, and until then, have fun watching movies. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.